Uh, my name is Jason. I get the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at City Light Southwest Iowa. Just so good to be here with you this morning on Father's Day. Um, Stephanie woke up this morning. I was, I was getting ready to leave kind of early, maybe 6 a.m. or something like that. And she said, Happy Father's Day. And I said, Well, couldn't have done it without you. So um, I feel kind of, <laughs> you're kind of selfish. But um, so it's kind of one of those things where Happy Father's Day. It's good to be here with you. Uh, this morning, if you have your Bibles and you want to open up to Psalm 95, we're going to be there. We'll see in Psalm 95 an invitation to worship. Uh, now, as a, as a pastor, as, people, as someone who loves you, cares for you, the reason I'm excited to jump into this psalm is because it, it talks about worship. If you were to say, hey, I'm struggling with anxiety, I'm struggling with depression, anything at all, um, or if I want joy, or I had joy, I don't have it anymore, what should I do, what could I do? I would say worship. The remedy for human element is worship. That is the essence of what you were created for was for worship. You cannot worship at any moment in your life. You, can no long, you can't stop worshiping just like you can't stop breathing. We were created for worship. And so the human condition or the human predicament is right worship or false worship. And so my hope this morning is to point you to a God who is worthy of your worship and then hopefully to show you how that, that impacts your life, impacts your heart. Now, as I was thinking about this, there's a difficulty in worship because worship isn't just a one plus one equals two. It's not just a linear experience that is universally the same for everybody. There is a subjective or unique experience. And parents, I think, understand that you love all of your kids, but the way you love them is different because God has created each of them uniquely different. But that doesn't mean you love your kids any less. And so there's a subjective experience, even in love, that I think we understand. But I had an experience this week that kind of helped me to see it. Um, some of you guys may or may not know my six-year-old daughter, Briella, got sick about... Uh, a week ago, she had a, it was a Saturday night, she had a fever, and that kind of went away for a few days. And then on Wednesday night, that fever came back, and it, it spiked. It went from, you know, maybe 100 to 105, I think 105.3 or 105.5, um, and it just went like that in about 30 minutes. So we ended up taking her to the doctor's office, and it reminded me um, that the doctors came out to check her, and they were in a hazmat suit, and it reminded me of the the movie Marty, Back to the Future, Marty McFly, where he's standing with the Walkman, you know, and, uh, and so I just thought, there's this six-year-old little girl who has a fever, right, and I get it, so they checked her in the car, and the doctor said, it's one of two things, it's either strep throat or coronavirus, and, and I, you know, in our family, there's six of us that live in our household, we share really well, <laughs> right, so if it's one, if that, it's either one of those, guess what, like, we all got it, and no one else had it. And, and so they said, one of those two things, strep came back negative, coronavirus takes like 12 hours, and so they sent us home. And that Thursday night, Briella is still running this high fever, we're able to knock it down with Motrin, but it comes back up when that wears off. I just told, told my wife Stephanie, I said, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right, like I don't think that's it. And this might sound kind of weird, but I'll connect it. I've worked in a trade for a little over 10 years. And I remember when I was first getting trained, uh, heat and air conditioning, refrigeration, that stuff, I'd work with these guys that were in the field for like 30 or 40 years, and they would take their tools out, but they would walk up to these refrigerators or these units on the roofs, and they would just listen and feel and know what's wrong. 
Like, how do you, how do you do it? Like, literally put their hand on the unit and say, yeah, this is what's wrong with it. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, get your testers out, check it. And they're like, no, I know what's wrong with it. Isn't it? And what I learned is there's, there's an artistry to crafts, no matter what that craft is, a touch and a feel. And I feel like in our society, we're losing that artistry. And I told Stephanie, I said, what the doctors are relying on is the test to tell them what's wrong. And I'm not disparaging. We have a great pediatrician, so I don't mean that in another way. But I've taken my car to mechanics before, and if the car doesn't tell them what's wrong, they struggle to find out what's actually wrong with it. And so that night, we're wrestling with, man, I don't think this is it. I know the doctor's going to come back and say, hey, let's wait 10 days. But there's something in your spirit that says, hey, this needs to get checked out pretty quick. And so it just happened by chance that we had a friend of ours who's comes to this church, member of this church, Dr. Bill Arthur Holt, who's retired, I was supposed to grab lunch with him, and he said, hey, why don't we just eat lunch at your house? So he comes over to our house, and he checks Briella out. He touches and feels, moves her legs, moves her head, does some stuff on her back. I don't know, you know, like, it was just some, some stuff. I'm like, how does that? It doesn't even make any sense to me, right? But it makes sense to him, and he says, she has a kidney infection. Just by touching and feeling, three minutes, five minutes tops, so we called the pediatrician, and they said, well, kidney infections in kids are pretty rare. Maybe it's appendicitis, but either way, take her to the doctors. So we, we took her to the doctors, to the ER, and they said, well, it's not one kidney infection. Both her kidneys are infected, so we needed to admit her to the hospital. And so she was in the hospital for three days last week, and fortunately, by the grace of God, she's running around here today 100%. Uh, and I thank you guys for your prayers, because I feel like that, that was a spiritual attack, kingdoms colliding there. And, and so I appreciate your prayers, but I share the story because Dr. Bill had, he had that artistry, that touch and that feel, and I don't mean this to disparage it, that the pediatrician doesn't have. And as I worked in the trade, I actually got to train people. I would literally walk up and put my hand over an air conditioner and say, yeah, this is what's wrong with it. Like I learned that, I experienced it, and so I could diagnose simply by listening to it and sometimes by even what a customer would tell me the unit was doing, I would know what's wrong and wouldn't have to look at it. That same subjectivity can be applied to worship. There is an objective reality, but then there's a subjective experience. And so there's some of us that are able to worship in that artistry of worship, if you will, and some of us are stuck over here and we're like, man, what's the distinction or the difference? And so my hope today is to show you how there's an objective truth in worship, and how the subjective experience transforms the human heart. Okay? How are we doing so far? Are we confused? Are we good? All right. It's Father's Day, so I know i got to be quick, right? There's grills that are getting fired up. There's meat to be burned. And so open up to Psalm 95 with me. I want to read verse 1 here. This is an invitation to worship. It says this. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So right off the bat, the psalmist, who I believe is David, because Hebrews tells us it's David, is inviting you and me to worship God, to actually sing. And the only difference between sermons and singing is the melody. And so what we sing is what we become, or what you sing is what you will believe. And so the, the invitation to worship is a redemptive invitation. So salvation is this, that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, that he rose from the grave, and that through trusting and believing in him, you can have eternal life. It's that simple. It really is that simple. That is the truth. That is the salvation. But then there is this subject of joy. 
I want to show you. Jesus helps us to define this. In John chapter 4, there's a conversation that Jesus has with a woman at a well. Some of you guys may be familiar with it. If you're not, don't worry about it. Jesus has this conversation with this woman, and he's blowing up cultural paradigms. One, he's talking to a woman, but then he's talking to somebody of a different ethnicity. These things shouldn't have happened, but by the grace of God, it does. Jesus shows us that we're all creating the image of God, and so he's having this conversation with her, and the conversation gets to worship. And this is how Jesus defines worship in John chapter 4, verse 23. He says, But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So there's those two things there. We see that. Now, this is where worship gets difficult. This is why it's difficult. Because there's a truth that exists that's out there, right? But then there's the spirit. So there's a part of worship you're incapable of. There's a part of worship where you're dependent upon the Spirit to move in your life and help you to grant you the ability to worship. There's a subjective experience, the Spirit and the truth. And he says, as we continue reading, this is Jesus' words, For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and in truth. And so we see here where Jesus is telling you and me the pathway to worship isn't on our own, but it's through dependency also upon the Spirit and dependency upon the truth. I'm going to get back to my page. I should have kept my finger in there. And so as we continue reading in Psalm 95 in verse 2, we see an invitation to come before God. It says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So worship is the invitation to come before the presence of God, and we come with joyfulness in our hearts. And so we come as people who are hungry. Like there's this reality to the world that we come as children dependent upon the Father. In that same conversation that Jesus had with the woman, if you, if you read that, if you want to go back and read it, you see where Jesus tells the woman that, that she will drink, if she drinks from this well, she'll thirst again. But if she takes the water that Jesus has for her, she'll never thirst again. So there's an element where we come before our Father needy. Like we acknowledge our sin and our brokenness. We come before him not as people with a pre-existing joy, but we come with, in some ways, our hands out say, God, I don't have joy. Can you help me have joy? I trust and believe that salvation is from you, and I want to worship in spirit and truth, and so I need you to intercede and intermarry that reality for me so that in this present situation right here, right now, I can experience your presence as the spirit is present in my life. That make sense? I, I know that's confusing, right? There's feeling like, I don't, I don't get it. That's the uh, subjective, you know, putting your hand over the unit and saying this is what's wrong, or Dr. Bill checking, there's experience there. And so as we continue reading in verse 3, the psalmist tells us the objective nature of God. And he says in verse 3, for the Lord is great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And again, O come, let us worship and bow down. 
Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That's the objective truth. God is the creator. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the host. So he could, if he wanted to, be a tyrant and say, I made everything. It's all mine. Worship me. You come here and bow down right now. God could take that, that demeanor because he is worthy of it. He is holy. He is perfect. He could be that type of person. Instead, he invites us through the means of salvation and the grace so that we can experience his joy. Let me put it to you maybe this a little more practical. I remember reading a book one time about good management. I don't know if I was inspired because I was a poor manager. I don't know. Tim and Tracy, you guys can speak to that. Um, but I was reading this book, and it, it said there's different levels of good leadership. And one of the diagnostics it said, or it, it characterized good leaders, he, there's um, some of you who served in the military know sometimes you don't have a choice of who your leadership is, good or bad, and you serve under them, right? So there's kind of that heavy-handed, it doesn't matter. Some of us sit under poor leadership because the paycheck is so good. Some of us are fortunate to sit under good leadership, and it doesn't matter what the paycheck is. And the diagnostic that the book said to determine if you're a good leader is ask people to volunteer with you on the weekend. Right? You're not paying me? I ain't coming on Saturday, right? But if you're a good leader who inspires people, they'll come in and with you on Saturday. And that's always stuck with me. Do people, do they follow you because they have to or do they follow you because they want to. And so God could take that heavy-handed approach and say, you have to. Instead, he says, do you want to? And so he extends an invitation for you and me to come into his presence, and he extends that invitation because he's a gracious and loving God. And the way we come into his presence is through worship. And so worship is essentially giving our affections to God. We are what we worship. We will become what we worship. What we sing is what we will believe. And so we cannot at any moment in our human existence stop worshiping. You're either worshiping God or giving credit to him, or you're worshiping a false God. You can't stop worshiping. The totality of your life is an act of worship. Romans 12 tells us that. You're living sacrifices. That's what we are. The totality. So I don't want you guys to leave here and say, I've stopped worshiping. Because when we walk through these doors, God is still worthy of our time and our heart's affections. It doesn't matter if you're alone or you're together, he is still worthy of that. He's the creator, the king of kings. By the grace of God, he's not a tyrant. Instead, he's a savior. Now, this is where it starts to get a little difficult. As we saw there in verse, verse 6, it says, let us kneel before the Lord. <laughs> like that, that's hard. For me, like my pride is like, I, I don't know. Are you, do we really have, I mean, can we stand up? Like, do I have to, like that? Like, I don't feel like anybody else here is feeling that, right? If I was like, come here and kneel before me, right? Any, no, one's, no one's feeling that? It's just me? Yeah, okay. I got pride issues, and that's why I need Jesus as my Savior. He needs to sanctify my heart. But that's the part that makes Christianity difficult is because it humbles us. But, but here's the beautiful part. There's nobody that's more humble than God. And so when he invites us to kneel before him, he's inviting us into that which he created us for. 
That's humility, and that's a pathway for worship. That's a pathway for loving. And so he's saying, come before me and kneel. In verse 7, as we continue reading, look at this, church. I want you to grab a hold of this. Verse 7 says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So when we come before our Savior and our God and we're in his presence, we find a caretaker. And so we say, why do we want to worship God? Because that is the place where you are nurtured and cared for. Ultimately, what does every father really want? Like every good father, what do they really want from their kids? This morning, I got it. I got it. Not this morning. Actually, I opened it up and ruined it because it came in the mail. But I got a gift, right? Don't open up get things, packages the week of Father's Day. Your gift. I just ruined it, right? So... It's just, so I'm repenting right here, vocally. I had, it was a t-shirt for my four-year-old son, and it said chaos, right? (laughs) And Stephanie had a shirt for me that said father of chaos. (laughs) And And then she says, I want you to wear this while you're preaching your sermon today. Father of, I can't, like, that's like, right? I mean, that, I don't. I'll wear it after church. Yeah. The gifts are great, right? As a father, the gifts, they're great. But what do we, we just want time with our loved ones. We want to spend time while we can with our loved ones. And we say, ultimately, why does God invite us into worship? It's the same thing. He wants to spend time with his loved ones. And he wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to know that he cares about you. He could say, I am a holy and majestic God, and so bow down before me. Instead, he says, I'm a holy and majestic God. Bow down for me because I love you and I care for you, and I will nurture and transform your heart. I know the brokenness that's within you. I know your anxieties and your fears, and I desire for you to have the joy where you can sing praises to me. That's what God desires for us. And the psalmist shows us this as we continue reading. Look at verse 8. Or let me, let me back up a little bit in the 7. It says, today, in verse 7, then we'll read 8. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Messiah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. It seems kind of odd that in the middle of this call to worship, in the middle of this praise, that David would then take this shift and remind us of the generation behind us. There's a lot of different reasons why he does that. But he shows us fundamentally that worship is a heart issue. Worship drives after your heart. It goes after that which you have affection for. Worship is a heart issue. So think about this. Here is Israel, right? With the story of Israel is that they're in slavery and in bondage. God sets them free through miraculous miracles. They travel across the wilderness. They're doing nothing but eating manna from him, basically bread. He's providing for them, set them free. And finally, they get thirsty one day. And so they get upset with God. It's in Exodus 17. That's where this is. And they begin to grumble. And then God says, that's it. One too many times grumbling, essentially. Essentially, he allowed them to choose to love him. That's fundamentally what's happening there. 
What the psalmist is showing us is what's happening in their heart, that as they saw the works of God, instead of having their heart softened in the subjective experience and inspired to worship him, they heard his voice and their hearts were hardened such that they rejected the works of God and essentially said, we don't want to go into your promised land. Now, they didn't say that, but fundamentally that's what happened. And so the psalmist is showing us that at the core of worship is what's in your heart. That's the subjective, right? So the objective is that God has worked on our behalf. He sent his son to live and die for us. The objective is what's happening in your heart and in your mind. Is it being softened? Are you, are you growing more in love with God or are you feeling a drifting away from him? And here's the beautiful part about it, and the difficult part about it, is that if it is dependent upon the Spirit, we can acknowledge that truth and say, God, I don't feel a connection to you. In fact, I feel a distancing from you, and actually, I kind of find it hard to believe everything that you've taught in the Bible, and so I want to believe the truth that you've declared, but my subjective emotions, what's happening, is making me have a hard time with that. And so if we're in the presence of God, what happens is our heart gets softened. Now, very practically, what that feels like when our hearts are softened, some of you guys have been there before, it, it's like, ow, God, st stop that. That hurts, right? Because if it's hard and you start to mold it and shape it and nurture it so that it's soft, it hurts. And so sometimes worship can actually hurt. We can say, man, I don't feel a joy right now. Instead, I feel a grief or a sorrow, and that is God letting us let the cancer of grief out of our hearts and to express it so that he can fill it with joy. I did not feel like worshiping God last Sunday. I felt grief and sorrow. I felt like just coming before him and saying, God, I'm broken. Like, here's the health of my itty-bitty, and I can't do anything but I know you can. And so God softens our heart as we come before worship. And so as Israel looked to their former life and their former gods, their hearts were hardened towards the one true God. And so David is saying, learn from their experiences and don't repeat them, because if you try to wipe away the past, you're bound to repeat it. And so he's saying, learn from what they've done wrong. Keep your heart soft towards God. And you'll have joy and praises and thanksgiving for all of eternity. But here's the beautiful part about this. As we see in verse 11, he says, Therefore I swore, that's not the beautiful part, therefore I swore my wrath, like that's not what I meant. Here's the other part, they shall not enter my rest. Now on the flip side, we see from worship, we derive rest. If you were to ask me, and I would make an argument for this, I don't have time, so you just have to trust me, what is one of the pinnacle acts of worship that we can do? I would say it's to rest. In a world of chaos and brokenness, in a world where there's bills, to rest is to trust in the sovereignty of God. To rest is to say, I don't feel oppressing to go make another dollar. To rest is to say that I'm okay with the house being unclean. To rest is to say, I trust in God as my protector. To rest is to trust in who and what God is. And that is the fundamental hope for God, is that we would experience his grace be so much so that we could come to a point of worship where we're actually resting in his presence. Parents, you get it. What does a kid who sit on your lap that won't sit still do to you? Huh? 
Those of you who have youngins, you, like, you're like, just sit. I'm going to set you here before I, I just, it, so we just want them to rest, right? Sometimes that's what God wants. I wonder if it, I don't think it's for his sanity, but I understand the goodness of resting. So God invites us to worship, not just because he's a holy and majestic God. He is. He invites us to worship because that's where we derive our good from. Now, here's the subjective reality to it. Some of us have worshiped God. We have that touch and that feel. And so we can help other people worship him simply by being visible before them because some people are still in that objective lane where like, I haven't experienced the grace of God to give me the freedom to worship him. And by the grace of God, someone you will. And so my hope for us here, if we were to say like, what's the practical application? It's to worship God realize it's not just here, but even as you go home tonight, or even as you wake up in the morning, to feel a sense of God's presence, to feel the Spirit working through you. So as you're driving, you're driving as an act of worship, right? As you're working, you're working because that's what God wants for you. That's an act of worship. And so we're living sacrifices who are constantly feeling the presence of God, you, you never, parents never stop loving their kids, or at least you shouldn't. And so we, we never stop loving, just like we never stop worshiping. And so we begin to see that God desires not only to be present in our lives for an hour a week, but for the entirety of the week. And not only does he want us to recognize that, but he recognizes it. And so there's this two-way street where we're, we're seeing his presence and we're feeling his presence. And we're saying, man, God is good more than just one hour a week. He's good all week. And then there's that subjective reality for some of us. We're like, man, Jesus is good. Let me gather and worship him and sing the joys of his salvation and the praises of who and what he is. Is. And so, church, we worship a holy and majestic God because of what he's doing for us. It's personal. And my hope is that worship is personal for you. I know some of you have had anxieties, you have fears. The best advice I can give you is to worship God. And unlike Israel, I don't want your hearts to be hardened. Because what happens when your heart is hardened is you become numb and stoic. And that's why in my estimation, in my opinion, to people who feel the most are Christians. They're people who have had their hearts, what we call sanctified by Jesus, transformed and healed. And so we begin to experience the world in newer heights and joys, and then lower lows. And then like five minutes later, a heights, and then like five minutes later, a low. And a heights and a low. And you start thinking, man, am I manic? And it's like, no. You're living in a sinful, broken word. Instead of having a numb heart that's hardened, you're actually loving with greater intensity, and then you're actually loving by bearing one another's burdens. It's dangerous to have a heart in this world. Just like it's dangerous to worship, but it is good to experience it. So my hope for each of you is you can have that artistic feeling, if you will, does that make sense or is that confusing? Does that make sense? Okay, good. Because when you say it, it doesn't make sense. It's like when you try to define love. It just gets all muddy and murky. And so there's a subjective experience to worship that I hope you guys experience. Because the objective truth is truth. That can't change. That's eternal. The only thing that can change is your subjective experience of the truth. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? God can, at some point, you say yes or no. 
And my hope is you say yes. I don't want anybody here not with me in eternity worshiping a risen Savior. My hope is that your heart is not being hardened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. My hope is that you're being softened to the truth that Jesus rose from the grave and conquered death so that you can be forgiven for your sins, so that you can live today with the practical application of God's presence and spirit in your life, and you can lead others to Jesus Christ because he is good, not because you have to and God's a tyrant, but simply because God is good. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you. I do pray for every person in here. I pray that their hearts would be softened. For your glory, Lord, I pray. But also, Lord, I know people have come through here today. I know that some of us, we struggle with Father's Day because we've been hurt by fathers. We don't have an example of what it means to be a good father. And so when we hear that word, Lord, it actually hurts. And so I pray for those who have struggled with that reality, I ask that you would be good and gracious to them. That even if it's a scared first step, that it's a step towards you and a trust in you as their father. A trust in who you are and your nature and character. They can see that you've been consistent for all of eternity and you will be consistent so we can trust in you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would rain down upon our hearts and minds, that you would grant and give life, that where there's hurt, anxiety, where there's it's bondage to sin you would set free. I pray that where there are lies being believed, that your truth would be declared, that Satan would no longer have a hold on our lives. Instead, the Spirit is giving us freedom. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would be a city set on a hill because of what Jesus is doing in our life and because of our affection for you. Would we be people who unashamedly worship you, not just on Sundays, but throughout the entire week? Could we understand that our life is to be set apart for you as an act of worship? And even the simplest thing of feeling the rays of the sun or a hug of a child, we can say, this is an act of worship because God has given me this moment and this time. He has granted and given me life. I have the heart to feel the goodness of this experience. Lord, I pray that hearts in this place would be softened. I pray and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.